This week on the show, we're looking at restoring a Tadpole Sparkbook 3. We look also a bit closer into the FreeBSD boot process, a Clara Systems article. Debugging an IOCTL problem on OpenBSD. Why Ruben's game PC runs FreeBSD in Kubuntu. DNSSEC, Badgers and Orcs from Michael W. Lucas. And more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 446, Debugging IOCTAL Problems. Recorded on the 9th of March, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for an online backup for truly paranoids. And if you would like to support this show, check out our Patreon page of uh, Patreon fame, patreon.com slash bsdnow for various ways to support this show. Hello, we are your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Hello, we are back with a fresh episode and collect headlines. It's kind of surprising that we always get headlines, but we do. And yeah, this there, one says... It has to be headlines. <laughs> it has to be one. Like the first line is always the headline. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so the, the first headline this week is uh, Restoring a Tadpole Sparkbook 3, Part 1, Introduction. Oh, it's written by Andrew Back. I know Andrew Back. I tried to give him a Spark computer and he never replied to me. Anyway, uh, he's uh, at 9600 on Twitter, which I just know offhand. Uh, so this is an article on rsonline.com. RS are an electronic supply company in the UK and Europe. And they have this uh, PCB design software called DesignSpark. Um, refurbishing a rare 1990s RISC processor-powered Unix laptop. And there's a beautiful picture of the SparkBook 3 at the top next to a bench power supply. Tadpole Technology was a small British com computer company formed in 1983 and originally based out of Cambridge, who amongst other things manufactured VME bus boards for industrial applications along with military spec, small server and laptop computers. During the 1990s and perhaps most famously, Tadpole produced a range of high-end laptops that were based on the Spark, PowerPC and Alpha RISC architectures running Solaris, AIX and OpenVMS respectively. The Alpha Tadpoles were famous for burning people. Uh, a previous series of articles followed the restoration of a Spark Station IPX, noting how Sun Unix workstations were a much coveted object of geek desire in the early 1990s. However, Tadpole laptops, which boasted a RISC processor, were a great deal rarer than such workstations, with an almost legendary status, and if you're lucky enough to see one in the flesh. In this series of posts, we'll take a look at restoring a third generation Tadpole Spark book which was introduced in 1994 at a starting cost of $10,950, which with inflation would make the price tag equivalent to almost $20,000 or £15,000 in today's money. The two things you immediately notice with the SparkBook are its robust magnesium enclosure and a very satisfying keyboard complete with an integrated pointing stick, the later being reminiscent of a classic IBM ThinkPad keyboard, and it turns out this is Turns out this is precisely what it is, with IBM also having invested in Tadpole in the early 90s. To the rear of the keyboard is a small LCD display for system status information, along with LED indicators and a power button. The specifications of this particular Spark, 3, Spark Book 3 are as follows. A whopping 50 megahertz micro Spark processor, 64 megabytes of RAM, Vitec P9000 frame buffer with one megabyte of RAM, 
uh, 9.5 inch TFT display, removable 2.5 inch 1.2 gigabyte SCSI drive, two, two, PCM, two PCM CIA slots, 14.4 kilobaud fax modem ISDN, and 10 megabit ethernet with an AUI. The processor was actually fitted to a separate module and the SparkBook 3 was also later available as an upgrade with a 170 megahertz turbo spark CPU. Uh, and there's a nice diagram of the internal architecture of the system with the processor module and the baseboard. It was decided to not dismantle the SparkBook until deemed necessary, as there was always a possibility of getting the disassembly procedure wrong and breaking a tab or damaging a fragile cable, particularly with vintage and more esoteric, esoteric portable computers, which can be densely packed with multiple modules and fittedly interconnects. Hence better to put the SparkBook through its paces as is to begin with, and then tackle dismantling as and when this is required. This way, if it develops a new problem, we know it is likely our own doing and we can try to fix this. However, we did get an idea of the SparkBook internals from its user manual, and this states that there is a baseboard CPU module and microcontroller module. These can be seen in pictures in the diagram above, albeit that the microcontroller shown as part of the baseboard. The microcontroller module is based around a Hitachi HAMCU and provides control for the keyboard, pointing stick, and LCD display, along with system control and status monitoring. Like most Spark stations, Spark systems, the SparkBook features SBUS for peripheral interfacing, albeit uh, unlike a Sun workstation and more in line with a typical laptop, this does not support pluggable peripherals and is able to integrate onboard peripherals such as graphics controllers and ISDN. It also features slower eBus, which is used for things such as NVRAM, RTC, and boot EEPROM. Um, this article is full of great photos as well. Unfortunately, we didn't have a backup and locating even a dead battery pack is likely to be a challenge. Above, you can see metal screening is removed in the battery compartment where two SIMs are available under what is presumably the baseboard. It looks really cool. And there's like a piece of paper for isolation from the chassis. Uh, it has expansion ports, it has two ports I do not know the names of, and I'm sure JT will tell me off, uh, and VGA, because I can spot that 15-pin connector anywhere. Uh, on the rear panel, there's a barrel jack connector for 12-volt uh, DC input, along with two HD50 connectors, as also used by vintage Apple PowerBooks. I've never heard of the HD50 connector. The first uh, of which is a SCSI expansion, and, uh, and the second uh, parallel port, the right of which is a 15-pin connector for an external monitor, uh, there are connections for external keyboard, mouse, audio in and out, plus two serial ports and a 3.5 millimeter headphone jack. Since we don't have the original power supply, a bench power supply, and because this is a, a, a blog post on an electronic supply company, the bench power supply has a part number so you can buy it, uh, was, was used instead. And in fact, it's probably even better to use one at first with such vintage equipment since you can monitor the current and if need be limit the current or gradually increase the voltage supply. On applying power and towering, turning on, the TFT display did not come to life. However, after cycling the power supply and pressing the power button once again, it did, and we were able to access the open boot pre-PROM and enter probe SCSI command to probe the SCSI bus. Fortunately, and unlike when restoring the Spark Station IPX, we were not created with errors regarding the NV battery having failed, losing the MAC address and the Sun host ID as a result. Since the SparkBook does apparently use a similar Timekeeper NVRAM with integrated lithium battery, the MAC address and host ID must be managed by the microcontroller. Next steps. As with the SparkStation IPX restoration, it would be preferable to switch to using solid state storage as to make it easier to experiment with different operating system versions and configurations, while also preserving the original spinning Rust SCSI hard drive. 
Ideally, this solution would also fit into the 2.5 inch hard drive caddy so that we could use it without needing to have an external hard drive cable. Speaking of, which, speaking of cables, an adapter has to be sourced to transition from the now quite rare HD50 connector to the 50 pin Centronic SCSI connector, which has also not been common for some time, but at least be easier to interface with the external CD drive for OS installation. Operating system options include Linux, NetBSD, and of course, Sun Solaris, the latter being the obvious choice for such a vintage machine, and likely the one that will be supported for by Tadpole Software if we can track that down. Seemingly has provided drivers and functionality for the laptop computing, which Solaris OS would not provide out of the box. We may also be, have to dismantle the spark boot to spoke out the MVRAM battery. This should indeed provide problematic, Finally, it would be great to track down a battery pack, even if the cells are far beyond being useful as it could be rebuilt and a laptop really should be well mobile. And that's a great first post in a series and I hope they keep going with these. Oh yeah, uh, if we <coughs> find the other parts when they come out, we'll be happy to look at them again. Because I'm... Uh, if the, Yeah, and if uh, the listeners don't know, JTR producer loves uh, Spark stuff. So and sure, old hardware in general. I'm yeah. sure we'll find these. Um, do you think this is a? This must have been a 32-bit processor. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Since I heard about these, I always wanted to see one. It does yeah. <laughs> and you just have to appreciate the one or two gigabytes removable hard disk of that day. I yeah. I mean, I, I've never seen one of these, but I I do know someone that's got a, a grid book um, from Grid Computing, and there's famously like a picture of one of them being used in a space shuttle. Mm-hmm. which is really cool. Uh, they're, they're sort of uh, uh, below this. I think they were 286 systems, but it's still really cool to see. Okay. Uh, next up is another Clara Systems article about the FreeBSD boot process. This is a nice addition to uh, many other articles they have uh, on their website because that tells you, hey, how is this machine actually getting from the BIOS or the UEFI prompt to my login prompt? And there's a Plenty of steps involved, as we will see. So they say at the beginning throughout this article, we will study the FreeBSD boot process. FreeBSD's boot process is very robust and well thought out, but it differs slightly depending on your system architecture and file system, whether it's UFS2 or ZFS, a partitioning scheme you're in using, like GPT or MBR, and whether the system boots under UEFI or legacy BIOS, uh, also known as CSM. Confused already? No, we're not. Uh, that far into it, but it uh, all started at the very uh, first thing, the BIOS. The BIOS, also known as legacy boot or CSM mode. This is the old school 16-bit system boot mechanism that is still supported on most computers. Uh, BIOS still works pretty well for the FreeBSD boot process, but it's a bit slower than UEFI and doesn't support booting from NVMe devices. BIOS mode supports MBR partitions, FreeBSD disk slices, and the newer GPT partitioning scheme as well. So. Around the corner comes UEFI. All modern AMD 64 systems provide UEFI's boot or boot support. And most of them also offer the legacy BIOS mode. Some even allow you to configure one as primary and the other as fallback if the first method fails. UEFI mode is also available on many ARM 64 systems and is required to achieve ARM's server ready certification. Uh, some of the ARM 64 and RISC 5 or RISC 64 systems. Uh, they also allow booting with U-Boot bootloader instead of UEFI firmware, and FreeBSD supports both of these methods. So that is already quite a collection. RISC-V systems can be booted uh, with OpenSBI bootloader, which supersedes the BBL or Berkeley bootloader from the FreeBSD project. 
The FreeBSD team is currently working on implementing UEFI support on RISC-V systems. So for all these uh, either embedded systems or big servers that we may have in the future a bit, uh, a bit more than we have at the moment. So the FreeBSD boot process itself, um, that can be quite involved day right here and supports many subtle different components. To make the process easier to follow, we've broken this article down into two sections. The first covers the loader from FreeBSD uh, or days of old that provided the iconic BSD menu. And the second covers what happens after we exit the loader and boot the selected FreeBSD kernel. So FreeBSD has several branching parts that lead to loading the FreeBSD kernel and then passing the rest of the boot process to the PID1, which is the init system. Uh, which exact path to follow depends on the system architecture, as we've heard, boot method, partition scheme, and file system. And they have a nice diagram that tells us what kind of uh, stages are involved, typically from zero to three, but it may differ um, in certain architectures or file system combinations. Uh, when you look at ZFS, for example, there's also uh, the ZFS loader involved, or whether it's ZFS using GPT, or uh, GPT, MBR, UFS, ZFS uh, combination. And so all these things need to be uh, accounted for, whatever the user has chosen. And that way the boot is a bit different. And they hand off each uh, uh, stage to the next. So stage zero hands off to stage one and then so on until stage three hands over to the kernel and then the kernel to the init system. So all these are necessary because, well, at that point, the system is pretty much dumb about you know what's going on in the system and what kind of devices are there and so and there's also not much, much memory available from especially the systems of old uh that's not in the article that's me speaking uh so that's why these little stages have to be small and then hand off the execution to the next stage so the bios legacy using mbr and ufs is the oldest way of booting freebsd uh, with a master boot record entry the partition table there and the ufs file system Let's assume that your boot device is a SATA disk def ADA0, which includes one primary MBR partition uh, called a slice in FreeBSD vernacular, like in a pizza, uh, visible as def ADA0 S1 for slice one. That slice uh, will need to have the active flag set or inside that slice, you can find the BSD partitions that are created with the BSD label tool. The root partition, that would be read during the boot process, will be def ADA0S1A. So just the uh, letter after the slice. Booting the BIOS with MBR requires several stages of boot process due to size constraints. Uh, as we mentioned, the BIOS loads and executes the first sector of the disk, which is called stage zero and uses the boot slash boot zero file. Keep this... Uh, save here don't mess with that the file contains 446 bytes of assembly code which the rest of the 512 byte sector containing the actual partition table which is why mbr is limited to four partitions and that led to developments for ufi and others after it loads and executes this 446 byte of program parses the partition table and displays a simple boot menu based on the partition types found and so you can say hit F1 for FreeBSD and some other operating systems there as well. So they also describe a bit more how they uh, hand that to the boot two sector or uh, more like from boot zero to boot uh, one to boot one to boot two and so on. And what kind of involvement the bootloader conf has and uh, entries in there to uh, 
uh, manipulate the boot or to change it in certain ways. Then there is a uh, method BIOS legacy using GPT and UFS. So a more modern uh, boot process there using the GPT partition scheme, but still using the older BIOS boot mode or BIOS legacy using GPT and ZFS. So you're already confused maybe. Um, <laughs> there are plenty of, but uh, the article nicely uh, describes each step and what kind of uh, things are involved to make your system bootable. And a little further down for the people who are like, yeah, well, why do I need to care about these things? Well, there is a thing called NextBoot in FreeBSD. Uh, this allows you to specify alternative kernels and boot flags for the NextBoot boot cycle, uh, but only once, like only for the next boot process. This is achieved by loader preferring the load kernel information from the boot next boot conf file, if that is present. Once the machine is rebooted, next boot conf is automatically removed, reverting the system to its previous permanent configuration. So in case you want to try something out and it hardly goes wrong and your system would not be able to boot, next time it forgot everything and you have a working system back. For ZFS file systems, NextBoot stores the metadata in a designated place in the ZFS pool label. Since the early boot code can't handle writing directly to the pool, the NextBoot metadata is erased as soon as it's read, and so it is only impacting the next single boot after it's been written. And they show a couple of examples how you uh, can boot a different kernel, for example, or set uh, to boot into a single user mode the next time you boot. So this can all be done uh, on the command line. They also provide a couple of example commands to manipulate the boot process itself. Uh, for example, uh, partitioning or uh, writing the boot code onto a certain partition type. That's probably what people did when they manually installed FreeBSD with ZFS. And uh, this is all done by the uh, loader or not by the loader, by the installer for FreeBSD. But in case you want to do it manually or you need to fix this because your system actually doesn't boot, then there is good instructions there and these help you to get to a booting system again. So all the more important to look at this article. Very nice. It's really good. I didn't actually know that NextBoot could do more than just give you the next kernel to boot. It's it's a fairly fresh um, development. I think Alan was involved in that because he used that to, well, update systems far, far away from where he was and wanted to make sure that in case something goes wrong, he has a working system to fall back to. Uh, I'm, so, so NextBoot for a long time has been able to do uh, kernels because I've always used it for kernel development. Uh, yeah. But I didn't know about like single user. Not that I ever need to boot into single user. Might be oh, helpful okay. if you want to boot into GDB though. Oh, right. Yeah, so you could go directly and debug what uh, messy kernel you have. Well, it's just so you don't have to chase loader. So you can uh, type reboot and then go and make a cup of tea and come back and it'll be sat in a debugger for you. I mean, not that, not that that's what you do while you wait for computers to boot. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of tea you drink. <laughs> but yeah, um, this is what it does. And it's useful, especially for end users who kind of get stuck in the boot process somewhere and don't get to a working lo uh, login prompt. So there's uh, plenty of instructions in there to help you, hopefully. Hope you never encounter this too much. Okay, next up we have our title story. Um, it's a blog post from Joshua Stein at jcs.org, and it is debugging an IO, IO control, IOCTL. I, I don't know what, there are three ways, IOCTL, IOCTL, and I, I try and alternate uh, between them. Uh, debugging <laughs> uh, an IO control problem on OpenBSD. I was trying to use the V4L2, which is a video for Linux 2, uh, Ruby module on my OpenBSD laptop. We ran into a problem where sending the uh, V4L2 IOCTL 
parts from the module would fail, while other VFLL2 programs on OpenBSD worked fine. Since I got a few questions recently, uh, the link to questions is a two hour long Q&A um, that we covered before. Since I got a few questions recently about kernel development and debugging, I thought I'd write up how I finally tracked it down and fixed it. Spoiler, it was not an OpenBSD problem. The issue. After first getting the module to compile on OpenBSD, I ran some simple Ruby code to set the parameters and start fetching data from my camera. But this failed with an E no TTY from the IOCTL, uh, which is uh, IO control vid IOC as format inappropriate IOCTL for device. The Ruby module C code that does this looks pretty straightforward. Uh, and the, the code here just runs the uh, IOCTL um, and checks if there's an error. The module is using B0 macro that just calls B0 and an X IOCTL wrapper function that retries IOCTL when it fails with error no equals error interrupt, which is E-I-N-T-R. -E if I look at the code for OpenBSD's video utility, it sets the format pretty similarly. I tried changing the field to v4l2 field any to match the OpenBSD utility, but it still failed with e no, no tty. I usually turn to ktrace to diagnose syscall issues, but in this case, it just shows that I was calling uh, iocontrol on a file handle 14, sending it vid iocs format and passing some data, a v4l2 format struct. Enabling debugging in the kernel driver, the iOctal was sent through the slash dev video one, which arrives at the video driver's video IO control function. It then does some error checking and passes it along to the USB specific uVideo driver's uVideo S format function. There are already some debugging printfs in uVideo S format, which are done through a dprintf macro, which actually only prints the video debug is enabled. I wonder if that's a syscontrol. No. Um, added a define uh, in new video debug above, recompiled the kernel and booted it. Running the video utility made the kernel print a line out. It prints nothing from my Ruby code. New video one, new video as format requested width, 640 height 480. Since the dprintf that prints this is pretty high in the function, I'm guessing it's not even reaching new video. So let's go back to the new video driver. And it shows the driver again. Similarly, we can enable debugging printfs in the video driver by defining video debug at the top, recompiling, rebooting. Now when I run my, my Ruby code, I get video ioctal uh, 208 uh, capital V5. Looking at uh, user source sys video io.h, I can see that it does appear to be the correct ioctal in the group V. Oh yeah, I said five instead of V. Uh, number five, and a proper side of V4L2 format struct. The IOWR macro is a series of macros that build up an unsigned long that corresponds to every possible IO control in the kernel. So the IOCTL is reaching the video driver, appears to be recognized as vid IOCS format, but is not actually reading the uVideo driver's S format function by the way of the big switch. Is it even getting into the case video IOCS format? Let's own our, add our own debugging printf to show that we reached that and the path it's taking inside the function. When running the video utility, it now prints uh, video ioctal, um, format requested, format offered, s format returned, s video io control returned. But when running my Ruby code, it only prints the first line, indicating that it's not even reaching the case vid ioc s format. Since the switch is on the entire command, not just the number five or the group v, it must match all of the ioctal parameters 
let's print the whole thing out. It prints the whole thing out. Uh, and from the Ruby code, um, the first time it runs through and it gets offered formats. And the second time it just enters and then returns with uh, code 25, the bug. At this point, I went back to the Ruby C code. How is it passing the IO control request parameter? Uh, have you spotted it yet? I'm not reading you all this code. Let's look at uh, yeah, it's difficult <laughs> to, to read out loud without the code itself. Let, let's look at the OpenBSD IOCTL man page. Um, synopsis, uh, IO control int D, unsigned long request, and then the var args. Of course, request must be an unsigned long, but this Ruby's X uh, IOCTL wrapper is truncating it to be a signed int before passing it to the kernel. A quick fix to change the X uh, IO control wrapper's definition and the problem is solved. The IOCTL function on Linux also requires unsigned long, so this fix is not specific to OpenBSD, but presumably the V4L2 IO control values on Linux don't exceed the size of a 32-bit integer, so this never caused issues for anyone. And that was a really cool introduction into the process of debugging kernel issues. Uh, yeah, way down into the rabbit hole. Yeah, but you just add printf, figure out where it goes. Yeah, no D-trace and stuff? <laughs> Come on. Oh, I know that. Um, D-trace can be really helpful if you don't know where things are breaking. Um, right. Loads of times I've used speculative tracing to figure out where in the subsystem uh, error no is picked up. But if you know a function and you want to see where it's going on inside the function and um, it's running enough that stepping through in a, debug in a debugger would take all day, you can just like, add loads of printfs. You can see where it's yeah. getting to. Until here, like reach this and next move. Or, There's yeah. really nice macros as well that will expand to the function call and the line number. So you can just have one printf you can copy and paste everywhere and you can just ah, watch it march nice. through and you're like, yep, get in there, get in there, get in there. Okay, done. Great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, it breaks between this output and that output. Okay, I see where this is going. Okay. Um, for more debugging tips, send this to feedback at bsdnado.tv. Um, Next up is Rubenerd, which keeps blogging. And I I'm fairly sure I read one of his articles on Hacker News before I read it here, but this is not the one. Uh, so he's getting some attention here. Uh, this is about why my game PC runs FreeBSD and Coupon 2. So Ruben writes, my sleeper PC game machine posts have generated feedback from people asking why I bother dual booting FreeBSD with Linux. Technically, it's triple booting with NetBSD, but that's for another post. Uh, he's done variations of this post more than a few times now, but he'll never shy from taking people's questions as an opportunity to talk about one of his favorite platforms. Uh, so Linux is now his game platform. He used to dual boot Windows like most people, but Steam and Proton have got so good at what uh, he wants to play. Uh, he wants to be able to leave desktop Windows and its frustrating mix of patches, telemetry, ads, and bad UI behind. Can't blame him there. Uh, couple that with Kubuntu's well-integrated KDE Plasma desktop, and he's actually happy to boot into it. He can't overstate just how much dread he had booting into Windows. <laughs> he runs Windows Server enough at work that has been alleviated thanks to the tireless efforts of Valve. Yep, that's uh, they've been doing great work and the rest was done by porting. Um, Kubuntu LTS being based in Ubuntu is officially supported by Steam. He ran Debian previously, but having stuff just work or knowing he's not running anything exotic when he needs to troubleshoot a launcher makes his life easier. Okay, so which then raises the question, why continue to dual boot with FreeBSD? He uses Plasma there too and the same desktop applications. Clara has joked in the past that she can't tell from walking past my screen, which I'm booted into. Yeah, yeah that's difficult these days with full screen apps and that makes, you, makes the illusion more difficult. 
He'll admit there have been times he's fired up a console or a console, the KDE terminal, and typed the wrong system command. Ah, yeah. <laughs> or SSHing into Package a system and wondering, why is this? Or have you like SSH into a system, into a system, into a system, and hitting control D a couple of times, and you're not aware that you're back on your home system from where you started? Yeah, I, I check really, really hard before I reboot things. So I'm not accidentally yeah. rebooting my gateway. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. So uh, if all comes down to the tool chain, he writes, or it all comes down to that, uh, Linux has things like Docker, but FreeBSD jails and OpenZFS snapshots are so ingrained into how he works now. He tinkers and tests everything with them. Dido Illumos, now that he thinks of it, it's a genuine feeling of relief and joy to use the stuff compared to Linux. I treat desktop Linux now like my work Max, a graphical environment that's officially supported by applications he needs, such as Steam, Microsoft Office, and supports consoling into something better when I when, or when he needs to do real work. Even his Kubuntu partition still accesses the, their FreeBSD home server for the heavy lifting. FreeBSD's graphics driver support is also sufficiently advanced that he can play games like Minecraft without having to reboot, which is where he spends most of his time process or progress more like the progress of team and the foundation have made on the linux later is also mighty impressive and leads him to hold out hope that one day he'll be able to play accelerated steam games on FreeBSD 2 that'll be the dream oh yes and when you do definitely let us know in a blog post before you start disappearing and gaming the rest of the, the... What, what, what steam <laughs> game do you want to play benedict uh, so I re on the Mac actually, not on FreeBSD. To my, uh, I have to admit. So I recently discovered Dead Cells, which is a roguelike uh, Metroidvania. If you know these sorts of games, and it's highly addictive. I'm kind of like, just one more round. <laughs> it's ah, uh, it has all the right things in there that make me uh, play one more round. Uh, okay, yeah. so so once that can run on FreeBSD, you'll be able to. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly modern game. It's I think two years old. Luckily, I didn't discover it during the pandemic, um, but I can definitely see the appeal. Do you have any recent games? I, I mean, I, I've been playing Breath of the Wild, so I'm about five ah. years behind everyone else. But excellent, I managed to borrow excellent. a Switch from someone, so I finally get to play the the only Switch game that's interested me. So I'm super tempted to install um, uh, Final Fantasy VII on the iPad that I have because it's available now on the iPad, and I'm kind of like. Yeah, is this actually nostalgia or is this with the new UI? Yeah, well, so you could play uh, the original Final Fantasy VII perfectly fine in an emulator on FreeBSD. Yeah, I know. I did that. That's my that was my very first a couple. Oh, and it plays it plays really years. well with a PS4 controller, which works without any configuration. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it was. Uh, oh yeah, the numpad you had to use zero <laughs> to actually run. You you had to press this the whole time, so you you're. Your finger was already <laughs> so mangled as it is. So the, and then... the PS4 controller, um, uh, wait, if you plug it in, so I never tried wireless because Bluetooth is uh, a mystery to me. Mm. Um, yeah. PS4 controller, you plug it in, uh, no configuration, it'll work in PCSX. Oh, I see. Very, okay. very straightforward, very easy to get. Yeah. But it's like a, a 100 hour investment in this game. Yeah, well, so easily. <laughs> yeah, not, time. not going to conferences <laughs> yeah oh yeah there's that um okay okay uh, we'll yeah. see where this so, is going something more productive books <laughs> uh so so next we have a, a quick update from front of the show michael w lucas on dnssec badgers and orcs oh my 
Talk about one weird mass escape, Michael W. S. Michael W. Lucas writes. DNSSEC Mastery Second Edition hardcovers, paperbacks, and ebooks should now be available everywhere. So that's the book officially out. Today is the official release date for Domesticate Your Badgers. I made this a pre-order, so it's available in all formats everywhere. I don't bother with pre-orders for tech books, but I wanted the Kickstarter backers to get a chance to have theirs in hand before the general public could order it. It didn't quite work out that way. Backer books start to arrive uh, in the last day or two, but they're on their way, so it's not a complete failure. Last, the fiction, rither, anthology Broken Dreams comes out today. The author list includes my name. The book description says something about alternate history in Detroit with orcs. It's at all major retailers and a bunch of minor ones. If I had pushed, I could have released letters to add uh, this the, the command uh, today, but even that's too much for me. Uh, a couple more weeks on that one. Consider yourselves warned. I'm, oh, okay, no, I know what that is. Uh, do you know what Domesticate Your Badges is about, Benedict? Uh, it's about the writing process, right? How to write. Ah, writer on writing. Yeah, it's it's kind of a meta thing, but it's actually good that he's writing this because I'm actually interested in the process or what tips he could provide. Yeah. Because writing is like this thing you can always improve in a certain way, even if it's just articles or emails even. There's always these subtle things that you can put in there that, you know, it improves your writing for other people to read. Yeah, no, and, and it's always good. It's always good to read books on writing. Um, I read at the end of last year, draft number four by John McPhee. Uh, John McPhee oh, is a narrative okay. fiction writer. He wrote a lot for The New Yorker and I think Time magazine. And it's a collection of, um, I think, seven of his essays that he wrote. Um, and then with some like meat around them. And it's a really good book on writing. Oh, okay. I bought um, uh, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott a while ago. I have started, but it's... I didn't get into it very far and then put it away again. Maybe I'll need to pick it up again. Yeah, I, I think that the John McPhee one's good because it's, I mean, he taught courses on writing for a long time. Uh, and so it's it's pitched well at like a bored 19-year-old. And it's oh, yeah. very rich in color and structure. So, I, I mean, it was really nice to, it was pleasant to read rather than it being very technically about writing, which I think is a good thing you want for a book on writing before you're actually a writer. I, I, I hope Domesticate Your Badgers falls in here too. He definitely... And Michael W. Lucas has definitely said really interesting things about it on social media. Um, and maybe maybe I'll pre-order it. Maybe I will order it. Yeah. No, it is. If it has the typical Lucas style in like in his tech books or in his yeah, uh, non-fiction way of describing things, then it's probably very accessible for non-writers even. Or non-typical uh, BSD uh, people who would buy his books, right? Okay, uh, we also have Beastie Bits for you. Sometimes we don't have many, but this time we have a couple of them. Uh, for example, the LibreSSL 3.5.0 development branch has been released. And that is, of course, on your OpenBSD journal undeadly.org. Uh, it's from the uh, development branches of Transport Layer Series of Tubes Department. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. And so they say as of February 24th, uh, LibreSSL's development branch has been updated to version 3.5.0 and they provide complete release notes on the OpenBSD's uh, FTP 
Uh, there's a lot there, they write, which would be best to read in its entirety rather than attempting to summarize here. However, for the sake of empathic repetition and encouragement from the community at large, this quote seems salient and worth sharing. Quote, this is a development release for the 3.5.x branch, and we appreciate additional testing and feedback before the final release coming soon with OpenBSD 7.1. End quote. So how big is that note? Okay, yeah, it's quite a couple of changes. That also includes many ciphers, so they make that listing long. Maybe that's the reason. But definitely check it out. Uh, we, we will report if the branch becomes a stable release or becomes actually a release for everyone to use. And so uh, check out any updates on LibreSSL. They, they also have a, a comment on there um, by Gray. Gray, uh, for what it's worth, for those who are stuck on macOS. I've also submitted a PR to Mac ports to update their uh, LibreSL devil port, which is at 2.9. Oh. Then there's a long discussion about PR. And then as an update, the PR was merged. So we get to skip time there. Okay. The it, it, it happens sometimes faster than you expect. Okay. Next up on, <laughs> on deadly.org, we have uh, OpenSSH update. So OpenSSH has been updated to 8.9. And this is from the security and near misses only count with a holy hand grenades department um and gray uh, writes on the 23rd of february 2022 the complete release notes may be found here uh open ssh was updated to version 8.9 for users not running openbsd open ssh 8.9 p1 portable was also released of particular interest from the release notes is a mitigation for a security near miss as well as md5 hash passphrases finally being depreciated from the portable the portable release, editors note it is about time. Yeah, cool. Always good to have uh, maintained and up to date OpenSSH there. So Th this one this one also has a comment uh, about the progress in Homebrew, um, and then a follow up comment saying it's dealt with. So I'm, I'm actually enjoying time passing this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's good. Yeah, uh, to skip if, if some things bit. are resolved in the meantime. We can just report results here and no problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, or at all, least not all, many. All, all bugs will be fixed in a montage. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. <laughs> and our final installment from the uh, OpenBSD journal are the recent developments in OpenBSD, a summary from the 21st of February, 2022. Recent things of interest include from the tinkering puffyism department, uh, the login class capability database now supports etclogin.conf slash d and then a class, and this is used by the port system. Thanks to some commits from Greg Stoik, Gnetzdo at OpenSD. Base now includes optional support for minimal runtime detection of undefined behavior. Oh. As described in the Clang local, this requires use of Clang's f sanitize minimal dash runtime flag. Okay. Joshua Steen, we've featured earlier in this episode, has written yet another interesting blog entry debugging an IOCTL problem on OpenSD. See how we tie everything it does, it together It does sound here? like an interesting blog entry. We should read that. <laughs> we should reread yeah, that. Read that. <laughs> um, and last but not least, uh, Tom, no way to pronounce this properly. I just give up. Uh, that person, Tom, has written The Complete Idiot's Guide to OpenSD in the Pinebook Pro. Whilst this is unofficial, it may well be of assistance to those undertaking that task. Oh, yes, there's probably enough in there to... Oh, I remember this. Uh, we covered on the episode that I did with Alan a week ago or two weeks ago. Uh, let's go into our feedback and questions. But before we 
do that, we should mention our sponsor for this week, Tarsnap, the online backups for the truly paranoid. For the people who are never uh, had an issue losing their data, this might be, why would I have to do this? No, this is probably happening to you sooner than later. And why not make backups while you still can? So Tarsnap is a solution from Colin Percival who wrote his own uh, backup service. And you basically uh, download the client and it's, uh, you point it at the data uh, that you want to backup. And it has a tar command line, very similar to the original tar command, but with Tarsnap specific parts. And then it takes the data you point at that you want to backup and figures out ah what are the unique blocks in there what can i do with the duplication and compression and then it figures out okay i can encode this to a certain number of uh, bits and bytes down to a certain uh, bit and then it asks you to create a personal key that it uh, encrypts your data with and only then the data leaves your uh, disk or your device uh, encrypted and only encrypted and then it's stored in Amazon's cloud where the Tarsnap servers are residing until the fateful day that you need your data back. And as long as you hold your personal key, then you are able to download it again and uh, encrypt it. That's the important part. You could probably download it, but not uh, encrypt it again or unencrypt it. So here you get your files back in an encrypted manner and everyone else who doesn't have the key can not make heads and tails of what the data is inside and don't even know what uh, it might contain. So that uh, Tarsnap is giving you. And the next time you do a backup, it only transfers the deltas, anything that has changed. And with some clever tricks, uh, Colin has made to figure out only the blocks that have changed and only the special parts that have changed and like a big uh, like text document. And only those parts are then sent over as a delta. So this is what Tarsnap gives you. It has a very competitive pricing model. Uh, you can start charging up with uh, like $10 and depending on how much data you store, uh, you will probably go <laughs> with it for a long time until you realize, hey, this is, this is actually quite good for a $10 initial uh, charging up my account. And um, yeah, so you get you never get a surprise bill, as Alan always mentions. Uh, you always know what you are um, paying for. Check out Tarsnap. There are plenty of clients available for various operating systems, BSD, Linux, macOS, uh, Windows subsystem, or subsystem for Windows. Um, <laughs> never used those, but it's available. You can look at the source code. That's the truly paranoid part. If you find something in there, Alan has a little bounty out there for anything from typos to really... Um, architectural problems you might encounter but there are not because a lot of people looked at them already and uh, yeah figure out the documentation on the website it's quite easy and walks you through making backups uh, sooner rather than later because it could be uh, any second that counts okay so we are all on the same page now Let's jump right into our feedback and questions section. We are not getting too much feedback these days, so keep sending this to us. Feedback at bsdnow.tv is your email address. Otherwise, this will be a very short episode at this point or until this point. Uh, so let us know what is in your BSD space. If you have any problems, if you have something to comment about the episode or what's on your mind about BSD, uh, let us know. Here we have Jonathan with an X-Wing and TIE Fighter question issue i don't know ah here we go uh so jonathan writes listening to episode 444 and fyi x-wing and tie fighter series from gog or steam works well with wine or proton on steam when you run it with the slash software cursor option 
Oh, cool. Star Trek games on GOG more, uh, mostly work okay with the current wine. Oh, excellent. I'm a Linux user, but maybe need to check this stuff out on FreeBSD. Good. I, mean, I don't I don't have any context. Benefit. That was me and Alan talking about uh, our old games that we played when we were young uh, or younger. And X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. So we, we started with TIE Fighter. Uh, briefly had X-Wing, but didn't... I wasn't too... Ex- uh, wasn't too successful with that. TIE Fighter, on the other hand, I played through. Not the expansion disc, I didn't have them, but the, the main campaign. And so Alan jumped into it. Yeah, me too. And we had <laughs> episode 444 talking about gaming. Um, <laughs> this is turning into a gaming Yeah, you know, I was going to say. Anyway, yeah, this, yeah. Uh, let, let's go to some ZFS. So the next question we have is from Josh on tech uh, about pool options. Hello, guys. Thanks for a great podcast. I'm not particularly a BSD guy, but I am having and have been getting into ZFS on Linux, specifically Ubuntu. I also follow in Alan Jude and Jim Salter and have followed all their ZFS advice, but I have to come to a little snag. I know there are some settings options that must be set at ZPool creation, but for the life of me, I cannot find a guide or video that lists them. I'd love to get a list of those options so I can officially get my ZPool correct for my servers. I'm not running anything critical, I'm running Plex and Nextcloud currently. I want to set up a VM test farm for future projects. Also, and I know VM storage needs different settings. Thanks in advance for your help. Um, so I, I asked people in IRC today, and I asked Alan actually, and no one could think of any uh, pool options that are required to for like good configuration. Um, yeah. There should be some which are documented in the man pages that can't be changed once you've created the pool, and A shift was mentioned. A shift is probably the one he mentions because many of the pool options you can change afterwards. I mean, not the creation date, of course, and not the space uh, <laughs> that's used, uh, but many of these that have a, that have a setting of default can be changed to something else, and that is typically uh, that's the power of ZFS that you can actually do this after your storage is created, and I think this refers to A shift. Yeah, I, and I think for this sort of use case. Um... If you're running a VM test farm and you not actually think you're going to have to store tons of stuff, so the storage will be applied while the VMs are running, and then the rest of the time it just won't be anything, you can experiment because I don't think you can do a lot wrong. I mean, you're not you're not talking about running a production system, and if you were, you just buy a second system and do that one better. So I, I think yeah. you can experiment. I think you should be safe. ZFS. Yeah, collect some wisdom this way, and then once you're sure enough that you've covered the basics or some scenarios like pulling a disk or uh, removing one from the pool or things like that, then you can move to the real world with real disks. Yeah. And like, ZFS is really forgiving. Um, the FreeBSD Journal is looking for uh, disaster war stories for an upcoming issue. And I was asking someone today and they said that they don't have any recent stories because since they moved everything to ZFS, there's not really been any disasters. Yeah, disaster is kind of a, a thing of the past with ZFS, at least in the storage space. You can't do many things wrong, or when you did them wrong, there's typically ways to recover or getting back to where yeah, you were, right? I mean, if you delete everything, that's still uh, Unix, there's no trash can. But again, there's ways to, you know, not shoot yourself in the foot or divert the bullet. Uh, yeah, I mean, like <laughs> from the, the last time I, I had a serious lockout was... Um... We used to ZFS jelly the pools with a key file. And I re- backed everything up apart from the boot partition with the key file. So I couldn't decrypt the disks when I moved them. Ah. Um, but I don't think we do that anymore. I think we now don't have a separate key file. So you can't hit so basically, the key like that. So you, you 
you you crypto locked your own system. That's what yeah. <laughs> evil people on the internet do for you. Actually, they they provide services for that. Yeah, I didn't, they want to get paid. I didn't have to pay anyone for. It. I got it for free. <laughs> yeah, and especially with, with those types of things, uh, with ZFS snapshots and boot environments, you can go back to a working system this way, and that's a good thing you could should test in a virtual environment before you go into production with ZFS. Definitely try it out, and you will be plenty. Uh, well, not surprised, but pleasantly surprised how well it works. All right. Thank you for these questions. And uh, we are pretty much at the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. Tune back in next week again, where we have another episode with Tom and myself.